0: This episode is sponsored by Fooley Gemstones.
1: been reminded just how complex and varying and in some senses contradictory that the nature of snake is. It's fear, it's, it's beauty, uh, it's evil, but it's health isn't it as well. It's, it's the beginning of life, it's the end of life.
2: I love their livery, I mean their coloured skins, their smooth sinuous movement. If they didn't have to feed on live animals when in captivity I think I would also consider having them as a pet. Welcome to with Jules Could
0: Talk, I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. I'm joined today by one of the best-known figures in the art world, Philip Mould, OBE, dealer, gallery owner, art historian, writer and star of BBC's Fake or Fortune. And we're joined by the jewellery historian Amanda Triossi, who's a curator and lecturer on the history of Western jewellery design and together we are going to unravel the sinuous patterns of the snake in the history of art and jewellery. Hello, Philip. Thank you so much for joining, if Jules could talk. You are joining us from your gallery, I think, this morning.
1: I am, Carol. Yes, I'm sitting here in Pall Mall, surrounded by art, much looking forward to getting stuck into snakes.
0: But there's a great picture behind you. Could you tell me who that is?
1: Oh, her. Yes. So she is a 1630s, very grand, ridiculously rich woman in the most um, intricate uh, black brocaded dress festooned with gold chains and a watch and holding a Bible, uh, balancing her earthly wealth uh, with her heavenly aspirations. It's
0: beautiful. And thank you, Amanda. Hello. Thank you for joining us. And you're joining us
2: from Rome and you have a lot of Roman artwork behind you. Uh, actually, they are some uh, collage and uh, made by Ismeralda Ruspoli, who had a fetish for snakes. So they're very appropriate. I don't know if the ones behind me, but uh, eyes and snakes feature very prominently in her artwork. So, Philip, do you think
0: it's right that no other animal features in art as often as the snake or serpent?
1: Uh, Lots of animals gallop, trot through art, probably horses and dogs the most. But the serpent does have a way of enduring throughout certainly Western art over a couple of thousand years. And you always notice it when you see it. We all respond to snakes, don't we?
0: We do. And actually, I think just doing the research for this podcast actually gave me the creeps. I'm one of the people (laughs) who sort of veer on the, the side of fear as opposed to beauty.
1: But could I just establish myself as a snake supporter? OK, snake Because snake. because Because when we bought our house in the country 20 years ago, the estate agent was clearly trying to put us off because I think she had a favoured buyer. And she said, you realise there are grass snakes in the garden. She couldn't have said anything more exciting. Um, and for the last 20 years, every summer, I wait for their arrival and I put up a piece of corrugated metal where they warm themselves and there they are. Um, I find them slightly frightening, but on the whole I find them compelling.
0: And Amanda... You're the Queen of Snakes, having um, been uh, the Head of Heritage at Bulgari for so many years with the Serpenti. Do
2: they have a fear for you? Absolutely not. Uh, I definitely stand on the fascination side. And uh, were they not venomous animals, um, I would not be afraid of them at all. I love their livery. I mean, their coloured skins, their smooth, uh, sinuous movement, and uh, if, I, if they didn't have to feed on live animals when in captivity, I think I would also consider having them as a pet. Would you? Even though, to me, they're completely unlovable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think. And I, I love the way you use the word livery about them. You know, that's, that's a, such a great word to describe those scales that so many people are frightened of.
2: Definitely. And they're, they're, they're beautiful. Mm.
0: And so what's attracted artists to try and depict them? Is it the colour, their curving, fluid forms? And what is it that attracts well, artists? So
1: if, if I'm to answer that question, I, I, I would say it, it, it starts with the symbolic power of the serpent. You know, beauty is also about fear. It's the frisson, it's the concept of the sublime. So I think, I think that sort of uh, moment when you look at a snake is part of it. But it, it's also... It's also so much more complex than that it it goes back to this sort of rich ambiguous symbolism to egyptian uh, to greek and very early christian times and yes it is a symbol of the devil but it's also a symbol of wisdom uh, in the medieval period uh, the snake the twisting snake um, on a stick known as the caduceus was a symbol of medicine of curing you know the opposite of the of the killing venomous nature of the snake in fact, the world health um, organization today still keeps a snake as a, as a symbol, so I think w- what artists particularly liked about snakes, regardless of the subject matter, and we could get onto the style and the and the shape and the curvy linear seductive allure of them, but it's about what they instantly Um, uh, get in terms of response from the viewer. And it's not just to do with um, a disgusting, um, fearful, uh, sort of venomous uh, head turning. It's also to do with the fascination that is embodied in many thousands of years of symbolic evolution.
0: Do you think as humans we had to somehow turn the sort of evil and the venom into something benevolent for us. Hence, hmm. it's used as something more curative, as you said, and um, something positive, and we kind of harness that power.
1: Well, it's, it's sort of the other way around, because if you go back to the really earliest origins of, of, of the snake, um, take Egypt, for example. I mean, the first living creature that ca- came out of primeval earth was the serpent. It was, it was the beginning of life. If you look at Christian history, uh, the, 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 the serpent, uh, okay, it's the devil, um, and, and, uh, and what a devil. But also, the tree of life was a tree of knowledge, and from that, uh, the world came forth and multiplied. That, that moment, that snake moment um And then, when you know you add it to 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 the to the uh, medical application of the snake, in a sense we've we've probably we've probably had to play with its more evil sides before we've actually talked about its benevolent seminal aspects.
0: So let's go to that um the Old Testament Bible story in the book of Genesis, which really shaped that that evil image when the serpent entered the earthly paradise created for man and woman by God, and the snake convinced Eve to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of life. Why is that image so widely depicted?
1: Well, actually, you do often see it, but when you really begin to look into it, it's not that glamorous a moment in, in art historical iconography, because you've got, really, you, you, your eyes focus on two nude figures, uh, any opportunity, incidentally, and one will we'll see that with snakes in old master painting to show people with their kit off uh, is, is is used. Uh, then there is a tree, and then in the tree is a sly creature. You've also got to show the snake. You've also got to show the apple. So I don't think actually Adam and Eve, even though so many uh, Christian cultures are, are used to seeing it in illustrations in Bibles and stuff does come off that well in the canon of old master painting. Yes, you get Albrecht Durer, the great printmaker, he does one, but, but it's more for me to do with how the snake is used in other contexts um, that it gets really slippery exciting.
0: In other contexts such as?
1: Well, okay, so probably the most important moment in, in sculptural history uh, in the West uh, was in 1506. And an excavation was taking place in Rome. And what was being discovered gradually as the earth moved away was so thrilling that even the great Michelangelo was called in to have a look. And they were revealing something that had been hidden in the ground uh, since the 1st uh, century BC or possibly 1st century AD. There is some debate. And it's called the Laocoön, uh, which is uh, a sculpture that is... Probably the most influential in Western uh, art, and particularly Renaissance art. A little bit about Laocoon. Laocoon was a, a, a Trojan priest who warned the Trojans that the horse that had entered the city could well be full of Greeks. And the Greek gods at the time, who were a sort of rather sort of a petulant, irascible lot in those days, they were so pissed off that that he had um, uh, warned. Um, the uh, Trojans against this ruse, that they ordered two sea serpents to come out of the sea and strangle him and his two children. And this scene was portrayed by an unknown uh, Greek, uh, probably it began with Greek and then it was copied by Roman sculpture. This scene, Greek-Roman, that uh, had been excavated, is so dynamic, is so powerful, is so terrifying, is so beautiful, that art basically changed thereafter. And what does it consist of? Two snakes writhing, twisting, suffocating. Cohen um, himself, whose face is looking heavenwards um, with a look of agony, his two sons looking on. But through all the pain, through all the horror, is the most exquisite, rippling continuity, a a curvilinear beauty that is the foundation of the Baroque movement that comes out of the Renaissance, and then subsequently seen in all sorts of other forms, including the Rococo and Art Nouveau. It was immediately taken to the Vatican, you know, so a a place made for it, so a key place. Uh, Napoleon um, took it to Paris uh, during uh, the wars, and this 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 crystallization of the ultimate epic beauty of snakes um uh becomes the most seminal um image i think in western art unfortunately they they they, they were strangled to, to death um but 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 it but it's the artistic triumph over it um you see what what it showed was by by you, you here are three figures larger than life in marble being bound together with this um uh, exhilarating coherence as a result of the twisting turning nature of the snakes holding them together it it um it cr- creates a structure within the snakes create a structure within the structure and and in 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 such a powerful and unforgettable way it, it, it habilitates the snake into art, or, or rather the serpentine line, which is so associated um, with the snake, that I think we can see resonating, you know, through Bulgaria and beyond.
0: So Amanda, tell me, was it the first mythological symbol used in ancient jewels by the Greek and Romans in a similar well, way?
2: The serpent is definitely one of the animals that is represented very frequently in jewels in the ancient Western world. And uh, however, in, in jewelry, it is a more benign symbol. Often it's a symbol of fertility. And obviously its coils are very suited uh, for uh, being worn as, as a bracelet. So one tends to find a lot of uh, armlets or bracelets in antiquity. In the Greek world, one finds spectacular examples in the Hellenistic period, that is to say the third century BC. Uh, There's a wonderful example, double serpents uh, joined by uh, a cabochon garnet. Um, But the real sort of boom, if one can say, or fashion for um, serpent jewelry um, really comes in the first century AD, in the early Imperial uh, Roman times. And uh, one can find evidence of uh, serpents uh, being worn in multiples. Um, for example, in ancient uh, uh, Roman statues, uh, one can see women depicted wearing up to five serpent bracelets and armlets. Obviously, an armlet is a bracelet worn high on the arm, and a bracelet is the serpent coiled around the wrist. And uh, Recent excavations or archaeological excavations have revealed a great number of these uh, um, serpents and in Roman times they tend to be uh, entirely of uh, gold without uh, gemstones. And why do you think they wore five? Was that decorative effect? Uh, Well, in Roman imperial time, it was a time of extreme luxury, which the earlier Romans would have frowned upon because they considered it sort of a symbol of decadence. But I mean, I think it was all this opulence and wealth. And it was just fashionable. We'll see later on, even Diana Reeland calling to wear many serpents in one go. It's, it was a fashionable motif. And uh, I presume um, that uh, they just enjoyed wearing lots of jewellery. But I think what is interesting is that um, if one is uh, not fond of snakes, I don't think you would wear many, many jewel snakes. So, obviously, Roman ladies. I would have been out of fashion in Roman <laughs> times, that's for exactly, sure. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You have to be a reptophile.
1: But I think that's what's so interesting, because I think you put you put your finger on the sort of, the the, the, the inner conflict, because it is a combination of revulsion to some, but extraordinary beauty to others, to do with the innate, curvilinear nature of the creature. Um, and I think that... I think that goes some way to to understanding the allure. It's 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 aesthetic, symbolic.
0: But in um, paintings, primarily, don't they signal evil or imminent danger? Isn't that the kind of shorthand um, way to to deliver that message?
1: Most definitely. And the most dry mouthed moment I've had in an art gallery in ten or twenty years was in Vienna in the Kunsthistorische. Uh, museum Uh, when I turned a corner uh, and walked um, uh, slap into uh, Medusa's severed head by Rubens Medusa's hair alive with snakes just briefly Medusa slain by Perseus one of the Gorgons had the capacity to turn her enemies to stone just by looking at her in fact, I know some people like that, actually, still today. And um, uh, so Perseus cut off a head and then used the head, held it up and used it as as, as some sort of um, um, hideous, inhumane weapon to turn other people into stone. But what Rubens has, has done, working, I think, with Snyders, who helped him do animals, he had a very well-organised studio, is um, produced a, a, a really... Brilliantly repulsive image. I mean, you could see the, the the dying, writhing snakes. You know, he's such a master of of the baroque brush that it's almost in the static form as if they're moving. Um, uh, you see a sort of lizard thrown in, just sort of watching the whole thing um, with beautiful, as you would say, Amanda livery and uh, the, the 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 dead eyes of Medusa who you know has the power to turn someone to stone, even in death, combined with the uh, uh, sort of anatomical, exotic um, disgust of these snakes, is up there, because I'm not really frightened by old master paintings, because, you know, it's a bit like opera, a lot of old master painting. It's it's quite sort of formalised. But, you know, this really was a a, a gizzard getter, this one. Uh,
2: Incidentally, what is quite interesting is that the blood coming from Medusa's severed head, um, was transformed into coral. And that's why coral has uh, a, uh, is a putropaic. Uh, you wear coral to be protected. So there's a link between the head and the blood of Medusa and coral. And that's one of the mesings of, of coral in jewellery. And you find, for example, babies, and the rattle with coral—it's to protect. You find, uh, um, and that, that is the reason. That's where it comes from.
1: That's very good. Yes, because a lot of Elizabethan portraiture has 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 babies. Um, the children, the children are shown holding a piece of teeth in coral.
2: Exactly, and uh, it it also had this uh, uh, apotropaic uh, significance to pre- evil, sort of uh, keep away evil. But Medusa was um, depicted by quite a few artists.
0: And I wonder, do you think it was the fable about it or was it the chance to create that dark vision of these writhing animals?
1: Well, I, I mean, Medusa, you know, in, on the scale of horror is, is, is really up there, isn't she? Um, I, I think we, we, we see probably more Cleopatra, actually, um, who, who, who killed herself in the most picturesque way um, by applying an asp to her breast. Um, and a, a number of artists right up to uh, the 20th century, including Gustav Klimt, um, used this image, used the snake image. We also see it in Henri Rousseau, we see snakes, but in another form. But, but back to Cleopatra, it, 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 it touches upon another aspect um, of the serpent and that is its sort of erotic, slightly phallic quality. Um, and for old master painters, it gave them the opportunity with the scene of Cleopatra to hold something snaky in that phallic form, sometimes it seems to, to look, held against the breast of the person who is committing suicide. You know, it's 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 heavy stuff, but it's also highly charged.
0: But that's interesting. It has that um, androgynous feel, the snake, doesn't it? Because as you refer to the sort of phallic shape of it and the way it's used in that as that sort of symbol in art I think in jewellery it's used much more as a sign of the fem- feminine isn't it Amanda because that sort of the coiled shape is is,
2: is the female isn't it? Definitely I don't think um, in jewellery it has that heavy stuff that uh, Philip was referring to and uh, it has a more positive, and I think it's, in in, in the majority of instances, it's a, a less sinister. And as I said, if you're in the category of person who's afraid of snakes, I don't think even a gold or gem-encrusted example can persuade you to be adorned by a snake. Uh, however, in general, snakes in jewellery do tend to be more benign. And what is interesting is, uh, for example, the the Often you find it in jewelry the snake devouring its head. and that it, it, if in that way it forms a circle. And so in that instance the symbol is really the symbol of eternity. The cer- circle is a symbol of eternity and uh, hence the uh, serpent uh, biting its tail is uh, also a symbol of eternity, the continuity of uh, the cycles of life and death and rebirth. In in particular, that symbol is known as the the Euroboros, and uh, it comes from an ancient Greek word, and it is a compound, in fact, of ura, which means tail, and boros, which means devouring. So it's the the head head devouring, uh, the tail devouring serpent. And that sparked a,
0: a new fashion in snake jewellery, didn't it? When Queen Victoria had that exact symbol
2: as an engagement ring. Exactly. Um, well, Queen Victoria um, uh, received uh, uh, from uh, Prince Albert in, ni- in 1839, a very charming um, snake ring. Uh, It was set with an emerald on its head uh, because it was the birthstone of Victoria. Uh, uh, Ruby eyes and... uh, um, It had also some diamonds. And in Victorian times, at that time, in specific time, it was very important also the symbolism of uh, the, the gemstones, which would have reinforced the message. So, for example, rubies and diamonds. Rubies are for passion. Diamonds are forever. Plus the symbol of the serpent. Obviously, the message is love forever. If one also wants to read the emerald a symbol of hope, well, let's hope love is forever.
0: And thinking of the snake as, as a sort of more positive aspect, um, Philip, I think sometimes they've been used, as you said, to reflect wisdom and, and reason, judgment. I wondered if you thought that was the reason the snake was in. There's a, a famous portrait in London's National Portrait Gallery of Elizabeth I, which recently revealed that she had originally been holding a snake, is that right?
1: Yes, so the, the iconography of Elizabeth, of Elizabeth I is, is is a wonderfully complex and rich subject. She was goddess of the golden age. She, she reigned over a period of uh, you know, tremendous achievements um, uh, for, for, for Britain, for England, um, uh, abroad uh, and at home. And uh, being this complex uh, virgin queen figure, which they weren't, you know, Britain wasn't quite used to, um, they, they, they deified her, um, turned her into a strayer goddess of the Golden Age. And so, so, some of the most wonderful moments in Elizabethan painting, when you're going down a stately, stately um, house corridor with a torch, is when you come across one of these immensely ornate. Uh, icons uh, from the 16th century. And Elizabeth I is at the epicentre of this symbolic cult. And the picture you were referring to at the National Portrait Gallery uh, was x-rayed recently. It was about, painted about 1580 on panel and anonymous. And there, behind a posy, was the artist's first idea. It's called a, a pentiment, a which is Italian for regret. They're the thing that you decide not to put in there. And, and uh, the artist had included a snake. And so she was holding as a symbol of wisdom this at uh, the centre of the composition, something which was powerfully appropriate to Elizabeth as part of this sort of cult of, of this complex semi-goddess figurehead. But clearly the artist, and for reasons that we're, we're touching on today, decided, even though it was symbolically appropriate, Uh, that so many um, potential viewers of the painting would likely recoil from this very centrally placed snake um, that uh, he, or possibly she, uh, thought better of it, painted it out. So only an x-ray can now now find it.
0: So it was covered by some flowers, roses?
1: Yes, uh, yeah. I mean, a, a, a sort of the the artist added a campaign, a, a second campaign, as it were, to the dress area, uh, and her fingers uh, painted like the snake, uh, and put in. Um, I think I need to have another look at it, but I think a posy, uh, some little flowers, and the snake was gone forever, until the powers of X-ray re revealed him.
0: So, do you think that should go back to its original snakely form?
1: Well, that's a very good ethical question because um, we, we have this a lot. I think when the artist decides to paint something, I I think you leave it, you don't touch it. If later restorers, however, um, and this happened a lot, uh, decided to remove a snake from a picture um, because it frightened the kids um, or whatever, um, then yeah, I would take it off. But in this instance, no, I think it must remain encased uh, within the sovereign's bodies.
0: And there it's sort of used as a kind of life force to, as you say, to to create that, that impact about Elizabeth and all she stood for. Yes, Amanda, you've you've referred to the snake goddess and jewelry being used as a a sign of fertility. And what form would that take? Would it be something different about the snake? Would it be um, a Different um,
2: embellishment. How? What form would that take? In jewelry, it takes really. It's always the coiled snake, and it depends. Uh, it's known as a symbol of fertility, um, symbol of wisdom, symbol of eternity in the benign sense. And I presume if you're wearing it on your body, um, and also probably as as protective as as, uh, as protection against the evil. Um, its forms vary over time. Like we saw in Roman times, it was just gold. In uh, Victorian times, for example, it's very interesting. Uh, One tends to find a lot of snakes uh, uh, set with uh, turquoise. And that, again, reinforces uh, uh, the sentimental message. Uh, Turquoise is the color of the forget-me-not. So wearing a serpent that is a symbol of eternity, because quite often there are necklaces where the tail uh, is inserted in the mouth to clasp to close the necklace, so you have the circle the circular uh, serpent coupled by the turquoise, uh, which is uh, associated to the uh, forget me not and then you probably have also ruby eyes, which is Ruby stands for passion and love. Again, the message is it's a sentimental jewel. It's um, don't forget to love me, or love is forever. So in that respect, one, one can read these different codes. And for the Victorian uh, wearer, the, the particular choice of gemstones would have had a very clear and specific meaning, which nowadays we have lost, we have to decode. So we've got very different
0: images of snakes happening here, because... I'm thinking also of the kind of life force of the snake in um, the self-portrait by Paul Gauguin, Philip, which again is um, it's used in quite a sort of menacing way, even though there are plants and flowers in the foreground of that of that artwork. Uh, what does that symbolise? So,
1: so, so this is Gauguin, who is who is a, you know, a, a, a complex, self-destructive, but also a brilliant figure. It's it's him. He's holding the snake in this portrait and his head is rather sort of Gorgon-like um, or Medusa-like and sort of dismembered. It's sort of floating and then and then you've got the snake in his hand. I mean, he he's using it, I think, uh, as we've been sort of touching upon in, in, in this conversation. For it, it, it's sort of uncomfortable, rather devil, Satan-like symbolic powers, I feel. Um, and also, it had allowed him to, to produce a beautiful bit of yellow wriggle um, into a rather tight composition. And, and this is something something that's I just need to return to, if I may, because I I think one of the reasons that the snake is so compelling is because of its inherent beauty, because of its um, curved linear contours, um, and. One of the most beloved um, artists of the 18th century, William Hogarth, the savage satirist, but also portrait painter, took it to heart. He wrote this book called The Analysis of Beauty, and in it he defined, amongst other aspects, but predominantly the serpentine line, the ogee, as he called it, as the absolute quintessence of what art should be about in terms of aesthetics, the curve and twist of the snake. And what you need to do, go to the Tate Gallery, walk into the 18th century room, and there meet William Hogarth, a self-portrait by him. And he's sitting there with his pug dog. But on his palette is written the words, or worse, the effect of the serpentine line or the OG line. And he's beautifully painted a snake shape. Now, you can play a wonderful game with Hogarth because he saw this as the way to produce basically any work of art, any painting of beauty. Look at the, the crowd scenes and the way the feet um, are arranged along the floor. Look at the profiles of his portraits. Look at the objects that are included. Even sometimes look at the architecture. He's forever looking for the serpentine line of beauty which philosophically he crystallised as, as the absolute essence of what art needs to achieve in order to convey its, its sort of highest ambitions.
0: That's interesting because I think this serpentine line of beauty is something every fine jeweller also tries to master, don't you think, Amanda? If we think Absolutely. of Cartier, Boucheron, Bulgari, David Webb, I mean, every jeweller has a snake that reflects our sensibilities to to try and master that line.
2: Definitely. And then even earlier, I mean, the the, uh, French Art Nouveau masters, for example, uh, Lalique and Georges Fouquet, um, obviously the whiplash line, the serpentine line is absolutely key to uh, all the movement and also in in jewellery. Um, so, for example, the two French artists, it's not surprising that they used to great effect serpents in their compositions. However, what is interesting is that the, the uh, serpents tend to be a bit more sinister than the 20, 20th and 21st century uh, serpents uh, created by jewelers. And another characteristic, for example, of the Art Nouveau jewels is the emphasis more on the design and the serpentine line as opposed to the intrinsic materials. And in fact, uh, the Art Nouveau artists tend to uh, use enamel, opalescent enamel or open-backed. Enamel that looks like a sort of a miniature stained glass window. For people listening who are not sure about the Art Nouveau period, it was
0: was a short period at the end of the 19th century when a completely new style was created in reaction to machine-made, mass-produced jewellery. And it had free-floating forms and very much um, focused on the natural world didn't it, Amanda, and and the structure of form and a naturalistic approach. And I guess the snake was
2: ideal for that. Absolutely. Uh, In fact, one of the most magnificent corsage ornaments of of Lalique doesn't have one snake or dragon, but I think uh, about six or seven. So he definitely played with this fantastic, sinuous uh, form and also the ambiguity, you know, of 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 its meaning. This sort of sinister, positive. But later, uh, later, uh, d- jewelry designers definitely uh, don't play on the sinister and uh, malevolent uh, aspect of the uh, serpent. For example, you mentioned uh, uh, Bulgari. Um, Bulgari was let's say, an innovator in the 20th century in terms of the fact that they associated the snake with a watch. And that was a first. I think they associated the snake with sex appeal. <laughs> Possibly. They made it sexy and also, let's say, uh, use- and also useful. However, the dial is very small and uh, um, it's, it's difficult to read the time. However, uh, the, uh, in the early ones, what is interesting that the first Bulgari snakes, which date uh, approximately to the 1940s, tend to be stylized. They are just formed of a coiled gold bracelet, and the head of the snake is suggested by the dial of the watch, which usually is circular or pear-shaped. It was only later, from the late 50s onwards until the 70s, that they began creating very naturalistic snakes, uh, painted uh, in gold, and they were covered in enamel. And sometimes uh, um, the uh, colours chosen uh, mimicked the actual colours of the livery or of the skin of, the, of, of a real species, of a real type of snake. And the head of the, uh, the snake was hinged and concealed the watch. So when you look at it, it is a perfectly formed serpent. And then to see the time, you lift up the head, and underneath you'll find uh, the uh, the watch. So that is Bulgari. And this was
0: the moment, as you referred to, that the Vogue editor, the legendary Vogue editor Diana Rieland said, "Don't forget the serpent. It should be on every finger." And all wrists, the serpent is the motif of the hour in jewellery.
2: We cannot see enough of them. Definitely. And uh, she, in fact, uh, uh, personally owned a Bulgari huge gold, pale pink and white um, enamel snake belt. So it was very large, but she enjoyed wrapping it uh, rather than around her waist, around her neck. Uh, to create maximum impact. So this huge gold enamel uh, serpent with uh, sapphire eyes uh, was uh, wrapped around Diana Reeland's neck. Like a python. Absolutely.
1: You could call it the Cleopatra syndrome.
2: Uh, yes, definitely. And
1: I, I have to say, I like the idea. There's an element to this, the frisson of, of the power dresser being able to, to conquer and dominate something frightening and evil. Yeah, you know, what's lovely is when you show snake jewellery to children, you know, you get the sort of the literal response, so they love it. Um, and and but you, that's what you're doing, aren't you? You 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 have wrestled a snake to the ground when you've put it on your fingers. You you have you have incorporated it. It's it's part of your menagerie.
0: You've sort of tamed it, really. You've tamed. Yes, you've
1: it. tamed it. That's the word.
0: So, uh, is there any? Uh, uh, are snakes ever sexy in art, as they have been in jewelry? Oh
1: yes, yes. So I mean, I think g- going back to the Leocoon, the the, the most seminal sculpture of of the Renaissance, although it was Roman. Uh, yes, the. The, the the idea of a snake being being something that and I, you know I'm making a, no distinction here between sexy to the eye and sexy literal you know sexy to the eye is something just deeply satisfying that takes you on a walk with a beginning and an end and leaves you better for it I, I see that throughout art. Um, and in the 20th century, there's some. There are some. And 21st century, there have been some some lovely moments. Um, I mean, there's a there's a beautiful Rousseau who, who does those jungle scenes. I think it's called the Snake Charmer, and he has them sort of hanging like like fruit, um, sort of dropping into the in, into the foreground of the picture, producing wonderful sort of slightly snaky verticals. Um, and then, um, and then recently, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a literal way, almost as terrifying as, uh, the, the head of Medusa by Rubens, um, was, um, that work by Polly Morgan, uh, which was half taxidermy and half art form, which showed a, a coiled snake in a piece of polystyrene. It created a lot of interest and the Guardian and others did articles on it, but it was almost as if, as, as if, she was saying, OK, let's go back to really enjoying just how terrifying a snake can be. And by a combination of the naturalism of the skin of the snake and the enhancement of of, of the context in this piece of polystyrene and the added bits and pins and whatever, enamel or whatever, I have no idea what she was using. Um, my goodness me, it put the snake back into snake.
0: I think also she was... Um trying to make a metaphor for taking peeling back the skin like the snake sloughs off its skin and becomes something else and i thought for me for a sort of modern a modern take on the snake as you know we've been going through these extraordinarily different times it sort of made a very good metaphor for that
1: well i think that's a wonderful point and 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 it takes us in a in a serpentine way full circle because I think one of the reasons that the snake in Greek and medieval times was an image opposite to what we've been talking about of health and, and, and cure uh, was the fact that um, it, could, it, it could constantly be reborn by shedding its skin. So, so this is an aspect that we haven't really touched upon today. But, but, but that, that, that fabulously positive nature... Of, of reoccurring life and and polly in in her work um, in in her very slimily beautiful work, um, has touched upon it again
0: and I guess um amanda the the art deco jewelers, as technologies improved and they were able to make the snake more articulated more snaky more <laughs> snaky and give it that sort of
2: Articulated movement, definitely. Technology plays a very important part in jewelry, and there are various uh, ways. They're incredibly labor-intensive, but in order to create these uh, objects that with scale-like motifs um, that are articulated, that you can wrap around your wrist, and they keep their form, uh, it is it is very it's uh, technically very challenging. And the way one uh, achieves that is by inserting a. Spring inside the body, and usually the spring is uh, white gold because white gold keeps its shape. So it's it's uh, so not only it's gold in the exterior, but you find a white gold spring in the interior of the object. And they're phenomenally labour intensive and require very high levels of skill in order to make them. Um, Talking about sexy. I think it's also sort of the pleasure for who is a is a reptophile. It's the pleasure of the weight, and I mean to to carry the weight of uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of a snake. And um, I must say I had a, a, a buzz when I was um, allowed only for five a few minutes to wear the Maria Felix. Um, snake made by Cartier. Now, uh, Maria Felix was a very um, extravagant, rather, uh, reptophile actress. She was Mexican, larger than life. And she commissioned uh, Cartier, a spectacular snake necklace in 1968. It took one year to produce. It was finished in 1969. And it's set with more than 2,500 diamonds for a total weight of 172 carats. But on the top, there are diamonds. And on the bottom side, there are the scales, scale-like um, body of the, sort of, of the serpent in green, red, and uh, black enamel. And uh, the, the snake overlaps on the neck, and so it's really like wearing a boa constrictor, but it's a it's a heavy one, uh, very sparkly, and uh, it is it is for who enjoys snakes. It's a it's a wonderful jewel to be able to to wear and enjoy.
0: Philip, as we talked about the
2: the technology and jewelry
0: changing the um, the image, figurative image of a snake. Have there been painting techniques and styles that have altered what you see as the image of the snake? For instance, for me, just as a lay person looking at some of the um, Victorian pictures by Bell and Jones or John Collier, they look they look so much softer and romantic. And I wonder if that has something to do with the painting style or just the subject that they're put into.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I I wonder whether it has something to do with the zoo culture as well, because I mean, we we, we, we can, in England, it's difficult to find a snake when you want it, Uh, but- but, (laughs) Well, they're
0: obviously all at your house, that's (laughs) (laughs)
1: why. I mean, I think they would have been more around uh, in order to copy and paint and and replicate uh, in the 19th century. Uh, because because of the sort of collecting, the animal collecting culture, um, which was uh, underpinned, obviously, by by empire, um, and uh, the bringing back um, of objects. Um, there, there's one wonderful painter uh, who uh, was um, a, fr- a friend of the Bloomsbury Group, and his name is Simon Boussy. He was a Frenchman and, and a friend of Matisse, and he did the most glorious images of snakes. He came over to England, and he did them in pastel. And he went to London Zoo, and uh, he would just watch them uh, and paint them and draw them. And this was all around about sort of nineteen, ten, twenty, thirty. Uh, and his capacity uh, to convey uh, their um, their serpentine virtues so well. Uh, in his medium of pastel, was the fact that he was looking at them in the life. And obviously, so much of what we're talking about in design is is abstracted, um, is, is is the sort of design essence of a snake. But it's quite good every now and then just to go and remind you of what these creatures look like. And from an artistic point of view, it's it's, it's enriching.
0: I want to know, Amanda, what do you own any jeweled snakes? And if you don't,
2: what era would you want to Of course, to wear? of course I own snakes. <laughs> it's my chance to have them. <laughs> I own uh, some some Bulgari snake watches and um and just uh, just plain snakes. So um, in but all all in precious materials so unfortunately i had a very beautiful example of uh, um archaeological revival uh, snake which was uh, in the second half of the 19th was- Latter part of the 19th century, when jewelers were imitating uh, the style of ancient Greek and Roman goldsmiths, following all the archaeological uh, finds that were occurring at the time. And I had one of those. It was actually my first, one of my first acquisitions, and it was stolen. So that was a, a big loss, but it was a, it was a wonderful snake. Um, uh, it was braided braided gold uh, that wrapped around about four times around the wrist
0: Philip any snakes in the gallery at the moment what do you have on show Hmm.
1: snakes no we're quite low on snakes at the moment but after this I'm going to go out and try and find some
0: (laughs) Philip thank you so much thank you for sharing that with us and giving us a, a quick tour through snakes in art And Amanda, likewise, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge about um, the culture of snakes in jewellery. Thank you both.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. Please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts, where we'd love a rating and a comment. Please join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. You must have noticed the big fashion for chains in jewelry right now. I'm gonna talk to the King of Chains himself, Chifa Decipher, a Londoner of Ghanaian heritage, and he is the star of Channel 4's High Life, um, a docu-series following the lives and loves of a group of ambitious, glamorous, young British West Africans. We're gonna talk about music, sport, and jewellery. Please join me then. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda. And you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton.